0: Oh, all right, let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word. We're so grateful tonight, God, that you have allowed us the privilege and the blessing of knowing you to come into your presence, Lord, rejoicing, knowing that you have given us full access to your throne room. Thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you that it's alive. And I pray that you would allow it to speak to our hearts tonight, that you'd use our time together to encourage and refresh us, in the name of Yeshua, amen. <clears throat> There's been some times in the past when I have opened a message with a statement that many times makes people laugh, and I'll say, did you know that Yeshua was Jewish? And people would chuckle and whatever, but the reason I say this is because it's interesting to note today how far we as a church have moved away from our Jewish roots. Uh, When I was pastoring the church in Johnson City, Tennessee, I walked into the largest Bible bookstore, remember they had those huge Bible bookstores, you don't see them too often anymore, but they had one in Johnson City, I mean it was massive, and they sold everything from t-shirts to mugs, to. they even had uh, little mints for your breath that were called testaments, I mean everything was to make money. And I was, Janice and I were really starting to get interested in things about Israel, and we had gone to Israel on a a trip, our first trip in uh, 2011, and I went back so excited, wanted to find everything else I could about Israel and read things about Israel, and I walked in, and this huge, huge bookstore, Christian bookstore, had absolutely zero anything whatsoever on its shelves or information about Israel. I couldn't find a Star of David, I couldn't find a menorah, I couldn't find a map of Israel, I couldn't find anything. And it was as if through our Christian faith, at least in the United States, that Israel almost didn't exist. So you will know if you'll turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 10. It's a very, very familiar story. Peter had just received an amazing revelation. He was at Simon the Tanner's house, was... Which was in Joppa or Yafo. And in, in Israel, it's just south of Tel Aviv, and before Tel Aviv even existed. And he's there at Simon the Tanner's house. He goes up on the roof, and he's hungry, waiting for lunch to be prepared, and he falls into a trance. As he falls into a trance, he receives a vision not once, not twice, but three times. Three times, the Lord shows him a, a sheep being lowered from its four corners with all types of unclean animals that are in it, and he says, take Peter and eat, and Peter says, not so, Lord, I'll never do that, I'll never eat anything unclean, and does anybody remember what the Lord said to Peter, can anyone quote it, paraphrased, what the Lord has cleansed is no longer unholy but holy, now, this was not a new teaching about the dietary laws for the Jewish people, God was about to do something amazing and use Peter as that instrument for it. Right as Peter comes out of the vision, some men arrive from Caesarea, 23 miles up the coast from Joppa. And these men were servants of a man named Cornelius who was a centurion. And he sent them because God had given him a vision about Peter being at this man Simon the Tanner's house, 23 miles away in Joppa, go find him, bring him back. God said he has a message to give to us. So they'd make the trek all the way there, and right as Peter's coming out of the vision, at the door of Simon the Tanner's house, who is it? Yeah, we're here to see Peter. What do you want? So they spend the night, get refreshed. They leave the next day make the 23-mile trip back to Caesarea. And there, he says, you know what, God, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this chapter to give you an overview. And he says, you know I as a Jew, I'm not even allowed to enter into the home of a Gentile. And you're not only a Gentile, you're a Roman centurion. I mean, this is hands off. But he says, but what God showed me in a vision was that was once considered unclean, no longer considered unclean. Peter understood the vision. He got it. He thought, oh man, I get it now, God, I get it. This is amazing. You've called me here. And Peter shares the gospel with these Gentiles. And not only does he share it with the Gentiles, but the Gentiles all begin to, they get anointed by the Holy Spirit and they all begin to speak in tongues and Peter's going, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is a game changer. Suddenly it's a revelation that happens, the gospel is not for the Jews only. He goes back later when they have a, a meeting in Jerusalem because of what's happening also with Paul and Silas with the, with the Gentiles and others and They get together, and they talk to Peter about everything that's happened, and James, who is the half-brother of Yeshua, he says, well, then the gospel is for the Gentiles also. This is a my I I entitled this, this evening's message, The Mystery, because this mystery Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians and in Romans and other places, the mystery that has eluded people for some time, especially now, is that, the Jews and the Gentiles were to be as one. And as Peter recognizes this revelation and takes it back to Jerusalem and they share with them, they simply give them three basic rules to follow as Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others go out. They said, abstain from things strangled in blood. Uh, avoid fornication, sexual immorality. And, and, and what was the third one? I'm just blanking. Anyhow, blanking on the third one. Anyhow, it gives them three basic, I was just sharing with Janice or Natalie earlier, and I told her, so, they said, other than that, they don't have to abide by any of the Jewish laws, rules, and regulations. So, with that in mind, after Peter preached the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit had fallen upon them, we see this radical thing. What happened on the day of Pentecost? We have... Peter, James, and John, Peter and John, I think at that moment, they they preach, and 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost. Amazing. My question this evening is, what happened to all the early Jewish believers? We know what happened with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, this was the spark for the Gentiles, and pretty soon... Paul and Silas and others were going out to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews and sharing. And all the early church was spreading all over Turkey like wildfire at that time. And yet, we look back and a lot of people say, well, what happened to those first Jewish believers? What happened to them? Yeshua was Jewish. His disciples were all Jewish. The thousands that came to know Yeshua at Pentecost were all Jewish. And as the churches grew and things were happening... What happened to them? I'm going to give you an historical overview. It's going to be a very fast overview. To do this really in context would take weeks. So you guys are going to get the machine gun version tonight, okay? But hopefully in that, you'll have a little bit more of an understanding of what took place. When Rome was conquered by Israel and, and, uh, and uh, when Rome conquered, excuse me, Israel and Judea, the area became one of the most difficult regions for Rome to handle. They were conquering all over, but they were having their greatest difficulty with Israel. And between 7 and 41 AD, Rome sent seven different governors to try to bring some kind of peace to the area of Israel. And each time, there were problems so great that whoever the governor was at that time of those first seven governors failed miserably. They couldn't keep the Jews in control. Then Rome sent Flavius. He became the eighth governor, and he proved to be even worse than the other seven governors that came before him, worse as far as being a tyrant, worse as far as persecuting the Jewish people. And one year on Passover, the Passover feast in Jerusalem, Flavius thought it would be fun to exert his power and show these Jews who was boss. He confiscated the robes of the high priests. He ridiculed all of their their sacred beliefs. And he demanded that the Jews pay 17 talents of gold out of the temple treasury. Now, you might say, well, that's not a lot, is it? Well, in today's terms, that would be about $2 million. I want $2 million out of the temple treasury. Well, that's a lot of money. And that did it. In May, of, May 66 AD, rebellion broke out in Israel against Romans. Full-on, full-on rebellion. Every city, every village in Israel rebelled. And it was an impossible situation. It was only, after all, a, a few thousand Jews rising in revolt against one of the greatest armies in the history of mankind. Roman leaders knew that the stakes were high, With this going on, they said, well, if if this little small area of of Israel, if they revolt and and are able to do something, then others might revolt against our power as well. So troops were sent with Rome, battles were fought. But it's amazing, this small country of, of Israel proved to be incredibly resilient against Rome. And after the first year of war, things were still not settled in Israel. So an emperor of Rome that you might be very familiar with decided to take it into his own hands, and his name was Nero. And Nero called for one of his most able generals. His name was Vespasian. Now Vespasian was given full command by Nero, do whatever you have to do to squash this rebellion. Get rid of it, stop it now in its tracks. So Vespasian was this kind of a general that moved slowly and thoroughly. And by the time he got into the area of Judea and Samaria, he moved slowly and methodically, taking the Jews down, slowly marching on his way to Jerusalem. When he finally got to Jerusalem, it's now 68 AD, and he's fighting and he's unable to take Jerusalem. By this time, he'd conquered everything else except the city. And his armies had gone up against the wall time and time again. And each time Vespasian's armies were defeated by Israel. But then something happened in 69 A.D. You know where this is all leading up to. Most of us know about what happens in 70 A.D. But in 69 A.D. something happened. And it changed the course of history for Israel. Nero died. Why would that change? You'd say, good, Nero was a terrible man. All right. Nero died. And the Senate got together and they said, Who will our new emperor be? And they decided the man we want to be our emperor is Vespasian. So they go and they notify Vespasian, We want you as our new emperor. He says, Fine. And he leaves and goes back to Rome. But he knew there was unfinished business in Jerusalem. And so he instructed his son Titus. He said, I want you, Titus to go and finish the work that I was unable to do. Now, Titus, as interesting as it might be, Titus took 80,000 men with him. I mean, I I can't even imagine the numbers. 80,000 soldiers to put an end to this rebellion in Jerusalem. And they surrounded Jerusalem. They put up siege catapults, and back then, they used huge rocks that would, you know, were hurtled to try to make gaps in the wall, so they could break in and take the city. And it did. The rocks tore gaping holes in the fortifications, and the Roman soldiers poured into the city. And after two weeks of savage hand-to-hand combat, you know what happened? Rome lost. Rome lost. 80,000 soldiers got repelled by these fighting men of Israel, and they had to back out of the city. You thought I was going to say it fell, right? No, it didn't. They backed out. They drove the Romans out of Jerusalem. So Titus went to plan B. He surrounded the city, cut off everything, and didn't allow anyone in or out of the city, no food, no anything, and he starved them out. And he waited. And you know what would prevail? After a while... You're tired, you're exhausted, you're hungry, you're starving. And he went in, and a massacre ensued. The temple was torched, priests were killed, zealots were thrown from the walls. Certain prisoners were earmarked for slaves and taken to Rome. Some were fed to the lions there, some fought gladiators. But what happened to the Jews that were left behind? And along with that, what happened to the Jewish believers in Yeshua that were left behind. At this point, it's now 70 AD, and the believers are still very much a part of the Jewish community. You have to understand, there wasn't a huge separation at that time. You have the remnants of this besieged city and everything else, and yet the Jewish believers and the Jews were all still part of the same community together. They were still as intermediate. They weren't like two separate groups The Jewish believers in Yeshua over here and the other Jews over here they were still involved in everything in everyday life for the Jewish people and all their traditions and and everything else was still going on but after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD the Jewish people were dispersed around the region and a major crisis developed for all Jews not just those believers in Yeshua but for all Jews And two questions surfaced for the Jews as a whole. Number one, how could the Jewish religion function without a temple and its sacrificial system? They didn't have the temple any longer. They couldn't perform sacrifices. What about their sins? What were they to do? The second thing was, how could the Jewish people survive if they were forced to live among the Gentile nations, if they were dispersed? What would they do about that? In time, answers were provided, Without a synagogue, excuse me, without a temple, they had to replace a temple with synagogues in each individual city. Without the priests, they had to replace those with teaching rabbis that would come in and step in in that place. And most importantly, without biblical Judaism, they would go to rabbinic Judaism. And a lot of things were added in by the rabbis that weren't really from the original laws that were passed down by Moses. So to implement these changes, new procedures were created, new rules were formulated, and Judaism began to take a different form, and it's the same form, really, that we see today. When Janice and I were in Israel, we discovered that when we we talked with people, that they said, "Well, well, we said, what do they do? How do the Jews handle the situation of their sins without a sacrificial system? And they told us, well, because they can't make sacrifices, they have moved now through the rabbinical teachings to good works. So their good works are the things that they will show as their, without the, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Pardon me? And prayer, yes, and prayer. So they, they took these things and that became their new catalyst that would allow them, they felt, to have a right relationship with God. A, gr- a greater prayer life, and unfortunately their, their prayer lives were, were much uh, to, to be on a, a, a way of rote prayers, but then also of good works. And so you talk to the Jewish people, and they say, yes, it's our, it's our works that we're doing. It's no longer the sacrificial system. I, I, if you really think about it, it can't make sense, because if you look, read the Old Testament, there's nothing in there about a works system that's, that's laid in there. But this is what they had to go to without a synagogue. And you think about it, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., and here we are today. How many f- years farther is that? And, and yet the, there is still no way for the Jews to find a way to get rid of their sins. But this caused problems also for the Jewish believers in Yeshua um, because by his death and resurrection being fulfilled, you know, they felt they didn't need the Mosaic Law they were no longer bound by its 613 rules that were in the Mosaic Law. And it was a new era, an era of grace. So for them, that transition might have been a, a little bit easier, but there was the conflict that they still had you know, with how to deal with that and still be a part of the Jewish life with those that didn't believe in Yeshua. There was also tension over the fact that many thousands of Jews who believed in Yeshua had fled from Jerusalem during the war between 66 and, and 70 AD, started by Vespasian and finished by Titus, his son. Um, these believers also opposed all the new forms of of the Jewish religious things that the rabbis were now instituting, and the believers in Yeshua were rebelling against this as well. And yet there was still they were still, despite all these fractions going on, Jewish believers in Yeshua were still a part of the everyday Jewish life. They were still there. They still had their families together. They still did things together. There was no separation. But next came more taxation from Rome. Rome decided that they wanted a new temple tax. And it was to be paid on a regular basis, even though there was no temple. But when the Jews discovered what the money was actually going towards, it was going towards supporting the temple of Jupiter in Rome. And they went, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know we don't even have our own temple, but our tax money is supporting this pagan temple in Rome? This went on not for a year or two years or five years. They went on paying this temple tax for 26 years. 26 years, and it was just irritating the people. By this time, it was the year 132 A.D., and a man named Rabbi Akiva rose. Sometimes it just takes one man. and In this case, Rabbi Akiva, he said, this is enough, and he spearheaded a second Jewish revolt against Rome. Now, he had enormous favor with the people of Israel, And so he was able to use his authority as a rabbi and his popularity to put a huge army together to revolt against Rome once again. And in this army were both Jewish believers in Yeshua and Jews that didn't believe in Yeshua. Still part of the same community, still working together, and now fighting together for the common good of Israel. So, this was a, a unique thing. They were still all together. There was no separation between the Jews that believed in Yeshua and those that didn't. But Rabbi Akiva then made one terrible mistake. His general that was over all the troops fighting against Rome was a man named Simon ben Kosaba. And Simon ben Kosaba was a, a, a very good man put in charge but Rabbi Akiva thought it would be best to try to draw the people together that he would give him a title, and the title was Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba in Hebrew means son of light, Messiah. When he made this announcement that his general was Messiah, how do you think that was received by the Jews that were fighting that were believers in Yeshua? They couldn't. They would not fight under a general who was now claiming to be the Messiah. And so the thousands of Jewish believers in Yeshua that had been fighting side by side against Rome left. They just said, we can't do this. We cannot fight along with our our brothers because this man is claiming to be Messiah. And although it rallied the troops for a while to give him this name, it ultimately you know, when the when the believers in Yeshua would not fight with the false Messiah, they des- they deserted, and the Rome the fight against revol- uh, Rome again would have been hard enough with all of the men fighting together in Israel, but you take away half of them. That means there were a lot of Jewish believers at that time. But with the revolt now, it doomed, and even with half of the men fighting. Three years of revolt and battle still went on before Rome was able to be victorious. And when they did, they literally turned Jerusalem inside out. They made the people leave. They plowed under anything that was left of Jerusalem, and the people suffered greatly. So the Jews that didn't believe in Yeshua Filled with all this rage, three years of battling to lose to Rome again, they turned their anger towards the believers in Yeshua who had deserted. They suddenly became the enemy. They suddenly said, oh, we're not going to handle this, so we're not going to have our anger or hatred towards Rome. Our anger and hatred is going to be towards believers in Yeshua. Those Jews who have given their lives to them, those that deserted us and left us. And if the Jewish people suffered, they they you know, sometimes people have to find an outlet for their anger. Sometimes they'll turn just against somebody else, even an innocent person. Their anger grew so much against believers in Yeshua that the rabbis finally felt they had to do something. So they then proclaimed that all believers in Yeshua were officially traitors of Israel. They were to be ostracized from the Jewish community, which is a huge thing if you were Jewish. They were apostate, unwelcomed, and despised in the Jewish community. You cannot be a part of Jewish life any longer. That was devastating to the Jewish believer. We can't... I think, fathom it to the degree. Have anybody seen Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, great movie. One, one, to me, one of the best movies talking about what happened in Russia. But Jewish community was like this. I mean, it was a tight community. And to suddenly be told, as a Jewish believer in Yeshua, you can't be a part of it any longer. You were cut off from your family. You were cut off from your friends. You were cut off from every bit of Jewish life. And you could not be a part of that any longer that left them with some hard decisions to make in the months that followed the jewish believers were forced with questions that they had never anticipated before first question should they maintain their belief in yeshua as messiah even at the cost of leaving them, uh, the community of the jewish of other jews they have to face that decision this is going to cost me something You know, for us as believers today, I remember, and and I'm, I'm sure you do too, I remember when I first became a believer, I ostracized a lot of friends when I shared with them the gospel. When I was living in Bangkok, I wrote a good friend of mine who had since become a lawyer. He was a really close friend named Bob Pedrick. And I wrote with him, just excited about the gospel. I just kept wanting to tell people about Jesus. And I wrote him this letter and, oh, I got this scathing letter back from him, like, who makes you, what makes you think your God is the right God, and, and that you have to go over and force your gospel down their throat? No, you, you, and oh, you, he just spewed out the hatred toward me. Other people I told, you know, they, they you know, guys, I, I was in a fraternity at San Diego State University, and telling people about Jesus was, was not an easy thing to do, but it didn't stop me from talking. And I got a lot of people that, almost, not not literally spit in my face, but pretty much tell me where I could go. But my closest friend in the fraternity became a believer, and my other roommate became a believer from the time. I didn't want to live with them. They were non-believers. I didn't want to have anything to do with them. I was looking for a Christian roommate so I could move out. And I told them, I'm looking, I'm moving out, I'm moving out. And one day I went up to LA for a couple days, and when I came home, I found out that my best friend, Bill, had found my my phone directory. Remember remember phone directories? And he looked through it, and next to all my new Christian friends, I put crosses or doves, something like that, little markers. He called every one of them up and complained about me wanting to leave them. Well, I thought this Christian thing, you're supposed to come and share the love of Jesus, and he wants to move out. What kind of a Christian is this guy? You know. And he called all my friends. And he finally called one guy and got together, and this guy talked with him. But when I got home, my two roommates were sitting on the couch like this, waiting for me when I walked in the front door. Why do you want to move out? What's the big deal? And I suddenly realized, oh, my goodness. I need, maybe God has put me here to share the gospel with these guys. I remember I shared with my friend Bill over and over again, and he was totally into evolution, and he worked at the San Diego Zoo as a, bus, as a tour bus driver and knew all about animals, and what about this? What about tigers or carnivores? And what about, what about dinosaurs? And he was sewing, and I'm a new believer, and I'm going, oh, I don't, I, I'm digging through the Bible all night long, and he's laughing at me, knowing that I'm digging through the Bible to answer his questions. Finally, the Lord spoke to me one day and said, this is what you tell Bill. So the next time he threw a question at me, I said, you know, Bill, I can talk to you until I'm blue in the face. Here's what you need to do. If you want to know if Jesus is real or not, because he was searching. Just like I, I searched, I looked at transcendental meditation when I was in college. I looked at all. People in college search, and he was searching. I said, If you want to know if God is real or not, he grew up in the Lutheran church. I said, If you want to know if God is real or not, ask him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Be honest and seek God, and he will answer you. One night I came home, and it was my habit. I put on my big, maybe the big headphones with the long cord that went over to the stereo, and I'm listening to some Christian music uh, on one of my LPs. You guys know what LPs are? Okay, long playing records. And he walks in, and I, I'd fallen asleep on the couch. And he walks in, he goes, Rob, Rob. And I take off the heavenly, c- he goes, I asked, just like you said, I, I asked God, and he revealed himself to me, and I believed in Jesus, and I accepted him as my Savior tonight. And I'm halfway, you know, that's great, Bill. Good night, you know. And he walks into the room, and I'm going, w- w- "Wait a minute! What did you just say?" And I ran in. And he, you know, he's just so excited. And later on, my, my other roommate, Mark, became a believer. You know, sometimes we have to figure out what to do when we become a believer, how that how we fit into these new communities, and how we reach out to people. And this is, I believe, what. The Jewish believers in Yeshua were asking, first of all, the price of leaving the community. And if so, could they survive in a Gentile world? What would that look like? Should they reject Messiah in order to stay in the Jewish community? Or should they deny Messiah publicly but secretly believe in Yeshua? Now, in 2011, when we went to Israel, I was only there for 17 days Jana stayed for another month to serve with our older daughter Christina in an organization called Shevrahim. Um And what they did is they brought in children suffering from heart problems from Israel's enemy territories, from Syria, from, um, from Gaza, um, and from Iraq. And specifically in Iraq, um, um, the um, Kurdish people and my daughter Christina became fluent in Kurdish and helped work with the children and and the uh, mothers because they only spoke Kurdish, and that was a predominantly the children that were coming in. And Janice stayed to serve in the ministry, and, and, and it was really amazing. But one evening, Christina was asked to go to a meeting, being, even though she was an RN herself, she couldn't perform as a nurse in Israel without being fluent in Hebrew. So... But she did have an opportunity to actually sit in on some heart surgeries by these children. They had invited her to come into the surgical room and watch. But she was invited to a meeting, and Janice got invited to go also, where doctors, nurses, and heads of medical establishment got together to worship and seek the Lord. Now, you have to understand, this is a big thing in Jerusalem. It was so secretive that people had to arrive individually and come in one at a time different directions and all top secret that they they couldn't let the people in Jerusalem know about this meeting it could have blown up in their faces it could have been something that that turned wrong. and a a lot of times and and still today rabbis and others they they if they find out you that you're a a quote-unquote Christian or believer in Yeshua they'll call Janice and I got confronted by a lady when we were up in this little city of Savat and she you are you're missionaries aren't you and she just was railing on us you know they if if they see you and they and or if they know that you've been around for a while, other people, the neighborhood that we lived in was mostly Iraqi Jews, and they open openly welcomed us and invited us to be a part of their lives and invited us into their their sukkah for Sukkot, which is coming up soon. And and, and we had relationships with them. But for the Jews here that were believers in Messiah, it had to be silent. It had that was one of the decisions they had to make. Will I be a believer but only silently? Janice and Christina had someone come in and share that they knew at least of sixty rabbis at that time. This was nineteen was this is two thousand and eleven. That at least sixty rabbis at that time in Jerusalem were secret believers in Yeshua. That was back then. Rabbis, secret believers in Yeshua. And you imagine that was back then. How many are there today? It is a possibility that these men, as as rabbis, as teachers, living in Jerusalem, are able to be there and share the gospel in such a way that they have people becoming believers, but they're not being exposed because they would immediately be ostracized for what they do. So... These were the choices that were made or that had to be made by those first believers. And as the years went by, some found that no matter how much they wanted to retain their belief in Yeshua, they couldn't do it. And some converted back to Judaism. They gave up their beliefs. Others retained their beliefs and remained silent. And many of them became secret believers um, and continued to go to synagogue. Now, as controversies continued within the Jewish community, belief in Yeshua was now established and growing among the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles began to increase, and that blend of being together with with the Jews, another problem arose. And that was the Jews were being persecuted. The believers in Yeshua were being persecuted, and the Gentiles didn't want anything to do with that persecution. So the Gentiles said, well, wait a minute, we're not Jewish. Why should we be in church with believers in Yeshua that are Jewish and, and, and receive the same persecution that they received? And they began to pull away from the Jewish believers, unfortunately. And so they said, we'll have our own meetings. We'll have our own separate from the Jews because we don't want to go through the persecution that they're going through just because they're Jewish. So that was another part of the sudden pulling away and without a background in Jewish history and Jewish life and, and the traditions and the history of the Jewish people, the Gentile believers began to lose touch with their roots. They didn't understand the traditions of the Jewish people. They didn't understand that Yeshua was Jewish. They didn't understand what it all meant and what it felt like. And if you've never been to Israel, if you've never gone, you may never fully understand that. Until Janice and I went in 2011 the first time, until I turned over our church in 2015, in January 2015, and we moved there. Different, radically different. Also, we had a a young man named Matthew who was the pastor of a messianic church in Johnson City where our church was, and we started going to some of the feast celebrations that he put on with his church. And our eyes began to be opened about wow, about wow, wow the feasts and these all the other things about Israel. This is amazing. There was a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in downtown San Diego named Rob Glickman, Jewish, but had nothing to do with Israel or his Jewish roots. But then he listened to the pastor of Maranatha Chapel in San Diego, and they started talking together. And this pastor, Bob, no, no, um, name. Can't even think about it. Anyhow, he's, he was really big into Israel and made trips three or four times to Israel. And he's saying, Rob, what's on? Rob Glickman? Rob, what, you're, you're Jewish? What's going on? What, you need to know more about Israel. You need to get in. And he had his eyes opened and he, oh my goodness, this is amazing. And the Bible came alive to him and all of his teaching and everything changed. When Janice and I had that happen, Ray Bentley, thank you. Ray Bentley passed away a few years ago. But Pastor Ray Bentley, thank you. When Janice and I went as a pastor, my eyes, I felt, literally got opened. And I came back so excited about Israel When <clears throat> um, that, that short 17 days that I was there. I began teaching about the feasts and talking to people and my whole concept of Israel and the Bible radically changed. It was amazing what transpired. So Without that, imagine these young believers, Gentile believers, and suddenly they're cut off from all their traditions and all the history and all the information, everything about Judaism. For instance, the Jewish believers insisted that the resurrection, uh, the celebration of the resurrection of Yeshua be held on the third day of Passover, the 17th day of Nisan, which is our March-April, okay? But since Passover was celebrated according to the Jewish calendar, and the people then, as we celebrate today, we use the Gregorian calendar. It's a different calendar. The Jewish calendar is 360 days, ours is 365 days. So they decided to celebrate on a different day. And not only that, not only that, but the Catholic Church specifically began to pull away from anything that had to do with the Jewish roots even more. In the Middle Ages, for instance, the Catholic Church institutionalized anti-Semitism. They made it their goal to hate the Jews. Many of you may not realize, Martin Luther, as great of a man as he was, and everything that he did to pull away from the Catholic Church, Martin Luther tried to evangelize the Jewish people. He felt it was his given calling by God to evangelize the Jewish people. And he, he really, really put his heart into it. But unfortunately, the Jewish people did not receive Martin Luther or the message of the gospel. Rather than turning his attention elsewhere, Martin Luther, in the later years of his life, became a full-on anti-Semite, and he hated the Jews, and he persecuted the Jews. And this is a sad part of his life. You don't see that in the movie or anything that was made about him or anything else. So the if you know anything about the Middle Ages it got so bad that especially what came in was the Inquisition. Not only in England, but especially in Spain. And I'll just give it to you in a nutshell because I'm closing this down here. In a nutshell, the Inquisition, what they did was they felt they had to evangelize the Jews as the Catholic Church, but they did it even differently. They said, you will either accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you will die. If they couldn't get them At first, to convert, they would put them on the rack. They would torture them. They would do terrible things to them and say, we'll take you off the rack, we'll stop doing the tortures, whatever it is, if you'll believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Well, basically, the the Jewish people would say anything to keep from being tortured, and they would say, all right, I believe Jesus is my Savior. Well, the Inquisition really didn't care because what they were saying is, oh, they're, they're going to die anyway, but we've saved their souls because they've confessed. And so it was a terrible time in the history of the Jewish people. The Inquisition was an absolutely horrible, horrific time for the Jews, and and persecution was ramped up. At that time also, the Catholic Church to do even further purging of anything that had to do with Jewish history, they burned the Torah, the Torah, the, the, which is the the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they burned all Jewish things that had to do with anything about Judaism. They burned it, they tortured, it, and they literally made it almost like against the law to, to have anything to do with the Jewish people, further segregating any Jewish believers in Yeshua from having anything to do with organized church. We know, of course, later, uh, and I'm really skimming it over here, but Hitler, um, in his, uh, ab- his efforts to try to destroy all Jews in the world, claimed himself to be a Catholic. And he had the support, and I can't remember if it was Pope Pius the fifth or something like that. Anyhow, whatever the Pope was during that time, he had his full support. So there's a lot of things that, that took place all of this to be said in history is that that mystery of the gospel that's spoken here back in Acts, if you'll turn back with me just for a moment, it took away everything from what we now know today as our Jewish roots. And you you might be thinking about it like, why don't we we, we read the Old Testament? To, but do we fully understand the things that caused the Jewish people and what they went through when these things first take took place in Acts chapter ten. So I want to read actually I want you to turn with me in close that to Romans chapter eleven. Romans chapter eleven starting in verse eleven. I say to you then, have they, speaking of the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. To provoke them to jealousy, that the Gentiles now believe in the same God. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? In other words, If they're not receiving Yeshua as Savior has caused that failure to be riches for the Gentiles becoming believers, how much more so if the Jews would become believers in Yeshua? For I speak to you Gentiles, he said, as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are, are my flesh, the Jewish people, and save some of them. For if they... If their being cast away is the reconciliation of the world, in other words, that the rest of the Gentile world believes, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so also are its branches. And some of the branches were broken off. You, speaking to the Gentiles, being the wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So we are that wild olive branch that was grafted in. And he says to us, the Gentiles, verse 18, do not boast against the branches. We should boast, oh, yeah, we're the believers now. And, you know, well, you, you, know, you had your chance, you know. And, and so he says, but if you do boast, this is what you should boast. Remember that you do not support the root. But the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God, on whose on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness. If, big word here, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, speaking of the Jews being grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted Contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. There's that word again. This mystery that we are only part of the body of Yeshua. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and so all Israel, look what it says, will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Replacement theology has become huge today. As people, believers that say we are. of the new covenant, we are the true believers and the Jews have nothing to do with it any longer. Okay, the God's covenant is with the Gentiles now. Well, God's covenant is with all people, Jews and Gentiles. And the mystery tonight is that it should still be so. When we lived in Israel, it was wonderful to go to a Messianic uh, congregation each week because there were Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And their worship services were just like ours. Same kind of music, except sung in Hebrew, and there was some a little bit English in there, mostly in Hebrew. And, um, and the message at uh, the church we went to, if, it was a, if someone was speaking that was Hebrew, he would teach in Hebrew and it was translated into English. If someone like myself was teaching in English, I had the same person translating into Hebrew. So it went out both ways. But it was Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. And that's the wonderful mystery that Paul speaks of in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. That's been lost somehow from our church, that we're all one church together. So pray for Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Look on sites. There's there's a wonderful site that's called One for Israel. And they have testimonies of Jews that have become believers in Yeshua. And it's awesome. They're just wonderful. Look on the news. Read the news and 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 look at websites and things that have to do with the news that's happening in Israel. So you'll know how to pray for them. There's a lot of crazy things that are going on right now. Netanyahu is in the United States. He met with Elon Musk of all people to talk about AI, you know, and stuff like that. And then he got finally got together with Biden. Biden finally invited him to the White House. and These things going on. now he's speaking at the United Nations. Pray for all of that. Pray for all the craziness that's happening in Israel right now, um, with this overhaul that that Netanyahu has done with the government and and and. You have to remember, even though all this rebellion is going on, they're the people that elected Netanyahu as their prime minister. Pray for all this. And all this is is working into end times prophecies that are being fulfilled left and right. And I truly believe, and it's been said for a long time, but I truly believe the Lord is coming soon. If not this year, then within the next couple of years. And we need to be ready and we need to be praying for Israel and for the Jewish people they might be saved all right any let's close in prayer and then we'll ask for father i just thank you Uh, god i I know this was a really fast overview but lord it just allows us to see that something has transpired in our churches that is so sad and that's that we have lost our roots lord we've lost what it means we're connected with with the nation of israel in such a great way that's where we came from. Our Messiah was Jewish, is Jewish. Our roots are there. God, help us to pray for Israel and for those in Israel that have not yet given their lives to Yeshua. To pray for those rabbis that are undercover doing amazing things, Lord God, and for many others. And God, the anti-Semitism is, is it's not going to slow down. It's only going to get worse. We know that Lord, because it's 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 written and pro- prophesied in the Bible. So God, we just pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for you to have your hand on them in the name of Yeshua.